This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week are two amazing people, Paul Jaceley. Hello. And Nick White. Hey. Thank you both for joining me this week. I'm still somehow sick, so I apologize for snorts and weird noises that my body may make. But let me ask you guys the question <laughs> that I ask every single week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Nick. Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess we know how Mike's been now. We sort of have the short answer to that. <laughs> how have you been? I'm a wreck. <laughs> um, accurate, accurate. Things things have been good. I mean, I suppose you're asking, you know, uh, what's going on in my life outside of Animal Crossing Pocket Camp, which is, you know, life <laughs> li- life is what happens when you aren't playing Animal Crossing Pocket Camp. That's uh, that's what to John Lennon meant Jeff to Lennon. say. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I see. I see. Um, for those not aware, uh, get into it. It's it's on Android. It's on iOS. Uh, it's been great fun because, um, you know, it's supposed to embrace the spirit of camping, you know, uh, uh, stargazing and, and roasting marshmallows and all of that other stuff that comes along with it. And uh, just despite Xander, I've been um, buying, like, TVs and computers and, like, big luxury couches <laughs> for my camp and then sending him pictures of, like, me more or less attempting to, like, defy the general feel of camping so that's been great fun Um, it's really a lot of fun when you send those pictures in the group chat i appreciate it (laughs) (laughs) and then xander just gets so furious it's great um so yeah that's that's a lot of fun um beyond that you know i've i've actually gotten around to doing a good amount of reading um for starters i read super sons number eight uh, I, I guess if you had to have a theme for like my reading this week, it's sort of books that were kind of waning and, and having issues, but for some reason, having issues, no pun intended, um, but have somehow found a, a second life in, in one way or another, and uh, I feel like you don't see that as much anymore. Books maybe, you know, there's such an emphasis on starting strong that like when a book starts to taper... Um, uh, it really takes like a, a drastic reboot or a team change or something to really shift gears correctly. Right. But um, right. Super Sun's kind of added a new dimension by um, sort of having in a lot of interactions now with the Teen Titans, uh, which ultimately uh, results in a age-accelerated Robin. So you've got like this grandpa-looking Robin running around because this <laughs> time master fellow, you know, super ageism and... Uh, and, and that was a lot of fun, and um, you're really starting to see the two main characters, uh, you know, Damien and, uh, is it John Kent? Yeah, Jonathan. It's John, okay. Yeah. Um, really grow, and, and John is starting more to, like, trust his his abilities and his powers and, and understand that maybe the most, you know, powerful ability he has is his mind. Okay, maybe that's like his 12th most powerful ability, probably. But, um... <laughs> and, 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 he, he is Superman's son. Like, what right. do you expect? Yeah, yeah, but like, he... God, I can't even remember now. I know at least at the beginning of the book, he couldn't even fly. He could just sort of, as Superman started, you know, he could leap whatever is a, whatever it is, leap large bounds with a... Yeah. I'm just going to butcher it all today. And, um, <laughs> and you know, da- Damien is, is learning that maybe he doesn't need to micromanage everything to be a leader. So there's there's character growth. I'm really enjoying that. Um, also really enjoying that, um, you know, uh, Jorge Jimenez continues to be on art. Um, the skeptic in me sort of figured maybe by now he'd be gone, but we've we've been lucky. So... 
Um, I read Exo, uh, as in Exo Man of War number eight. Um, this is the first issue drawn by Clayton Crane. Um, for those unaware, Clayton Crane did team up with Matt Kint, uh, the author in the past. They um, teamed up for 4000 AD, uh, and they also teamed up for Rye. Um, and this is a really good team up because the one thing that Clayton Crane does really well, if you ever see his art, is it all has this weird glossy liquid metal reflective sheen. Like yeah. that would be that would be like the you know skills and abilities profile on his like LinkedIn page. You know liquid so glossy. Good. You know metal reflective sheen. You know check mark. I've got this. You know seven people have recommended you for this. That would be his specific attribute. Um, and it works really well for for EXO because the emphasis of the recent EXO arc has been. Um, uh, Eric of Dacia's increasing reliance on the armor, also known as Shinara. Um, and so you've just got this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful looking armor. Um, it's also good because this book is sort of moving back more towards an action um, feel and less of the... Um, you know, talky-talky, Game of Thrones, here are eight different factions representing all these different people um, sort of feel. So the book's pace has kicked up a bit. Um, and, yeah, I mean, whenever I see, like, Eric in the armor now, like, all I can think of is just applying, like, the, you know, U2 song, Wither Without You, like, in the background, because I feel like that's, like, <laughs> that's, like, the ongoing theme of Exo Man of War, and it's, like, you know, this reliance on the armor, so... That's just me arbitrarily, you know, applying soundtracks to books. So um, before before you move on, I yeah. think when you catch up on this book, yeah, I, need I think to just I'm have one a back. Yeah. I know you're only one back. <laughs> I'm just saying when you catch up, I want to have a serious discussion with you about this book <laughs> because there's a huge question that that has been on my mind, but I don't want to say it now on the show lest I spoil the issue number nine, and I don't want to do that for you. So okay. when you get past that, let me know, because I want to talk to you about it. Just okay. There's a whole big like philosophical question about this book that I have for you that I think you would know because you've read more Valiant, you've read more EXO than yeah, I, sure. so maybe you can answer it. Yeah, that's an excellent idea. Um, I'll just show myself the door. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, quick few other just quick hits here. Skin and Earth number four really falls into the same thing I've been talking about. Um, a series that uh, is a six-issue miniseries uh, from the musician slash artist Lights, uh, the electro-pop Canadian artist. Um, for only six issues, the first three were very slow, very like kind of just ambling about uh, really just people hanging out with other people and yeah this current world sucks doesn't it yes and it was like you know the the you know the the neurotic part of me was like looking at my watch and like you you have you know time's a ticking you've got three issues people like let's let's <laughs> let's go somewhere with this come on come on uh, and yet what I what I didn't really realize is that the book was actually very doing a very slow burn world building experience um you know a lot of books are like all right let's put all the world building in one issue and of course that pisses me off too um so this was just more of a slow burn we're actually starting to see this book um go places now but it's it's a really interesting sort of experiment obviously because it ties in with her most recent album uh of the same name skin and earth uh, and I would definitely encourage people to go check it out, especially because um, she's 
as far as I understand, she's been largely self-taught for all of this. And so a lot of the issues have like, you know, how did I learn how to use this program? How did I learn how to do this? And so from someone who's like, you know, I just sort of decided to do this. Uh, it's an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, Finally, I did read like one or two Star Wars things. I'll just say this. Poe Dameron, Volume 1. I know I'm late to the party. I know uh, Charles Soule, Phil Noto drawing it. Absolutely beautiful book for people who actually want some Star Wars narratives that are more based around the current trilogy that's going on. Um, This is a a wonderful book. Uh, It's got all of Poe Dameron's charm. Uh, It's got all of BB-8's sassiness and noises. Um, I, I want a book based on the droid gang from this book. Uh, there's like a, like a, like a droid team up heist thing that goes on between all of the, uh, X-Wing pilots droids. Uh, I, I want that. Uh, I also love that, uh, Adoros is actually a hero in this book. Um, for those who have read it, uh, the Duros is the like um, technician of their squad. Um, uh, he's the one that flies the A-wing, um, and I just I'm glad that this alien profiling in the Star Wars universe is like ending. Like, okay, some Ewoks and Wookies are gonna be like bad dudes. Okay, it's possible. Not all Ewoks <laughs> and Wookies are like are, are you know. I'm sure there's a couple real assholes amongst a bunch. Okay, in the same vein, not all Devonians, Duros, and Quarans are bad dudes. Okay, so let's stop the Star Wars universe alien profiling all right like that just just <laughs> this, a suggestion this book is doing that it's they're trying to. it is doing that yeah, i appreciate that. that with poe dameron yeah exactly so that's 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 pretty much what i've read uh what what about you paul well i actually read a lot of stuff this week uh most of it was read rereading doom patrol the grant morrison doom patrol run um it's probably if i had to guess maybe the fifth time i've read this run all the way through oh, wow um it's one of my favorite comics and it's great is going back and revisiting it after a couple of years it still holds up so this is the uh doom patrol written in the late 80s early 90s written by grant morrison uh artwork for most of it by richard case and yeah i don't know if you haven't read it by this point you really need to track it down because i revisiting it it just reminded me just how how great of a book it is and just how long planned Morrison's run is. There's stuff that happens in these issues that I remember happening way later in his run. Then you see like having read it a couple of times, I can see all the seeds and all the ideas that he's kind of introducing right away that'll pay off down the road. So um, I know Mike, you're reading some of this stuff too. So I'm excited to talk yeah. about it with you at some point. Yeah. I, I've been s- slowly making my way through volume two i don't know why i've only i've been reading it like issue by issue yeah um i really need to like what i did with the first volume was just i just flew through it i really need to do that with the rest of it because it it requires some connection especially since i'm not familiar with it and it's all new blah 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 yeah yeah. i I remember i did that with his animal man run and it really paid off to do that so maybe i'll try to push through that this week yeah for those of us who are like seemingly bad people and are considering <laughs> reading the new um doom patrol first like yeah is that like okay slash probably not recommended slash definitely not recommended I, he, okay here's I'll, here's my mini soapbox discussion about, about, Ooh, about okay. this topic okay <laughs> okay there is something about going into a comic and being surprised and being kind of lost that i really really value and enjoy and i oh, think yeah. Graham Morrison and I think Gerard Way, as a sort of student of Morrison, tries to craft comics where you don't know exactly what's going on and it's up to you as a reader to kind of figure it out because they loved that as kids, that feeling. So mm-hmm. they try to do that with their comics. So on one hand, 
if you've read Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, there's a lot of stuff in the new Gerard Way Doom Patrol that is a payoff or an homage to it. Mm-hmm. But if you come to it clean, you can still enjoy it on its own. It's equally th- disorienting. Right. And I think <laughs> and it's not that I don't think they're doing they're not trying to be confusing on purpose. I think that they're oh, trying sure. to recreate that feeling of like when you were a kid, when I was a kid, I would buy comics off the, the rack at the you know supermarket and you'd get yeah. issue five, issue 17, issue like you didn't have a complete run. Yeah. But that was kind of fun of it, it was just being lost in this big world. And I think for both those writers, that's really what they try to do with their books. So I yeah, you should read Grant Morrison Doom Patrol anyway, but I think you can read the new one with with a clean slate without any previous knowledge. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I've been reading all that, digging through that. Um, also read a bunch of Batman comics this week. I know that's a big surprise. Uh, my thing. I read Batman creature of the night. Number one. This is the four issue miniseries written by Kurt Busick art by John Paul Leone. This is my pick of the week, a couple episodes ago, and it's even better than I expected. This is the sort of real world take on Batman where Batman is a fictional character but doesn't really exist. Um, there's a young boy in the late 60s who absolutely loves Batman, loves the Adam West TV show, loves Batman comics. His name is Bruce Wainwright. Um, and <laughs> his, his parents get killed by a mugger on Halloween night, and it's all about how he deals with that. And it's how it's a lot about how the character Batman can help a kid deal with that, but there's a great twist at the end that introduces something more sinister as a result. So really enjoyed hmm. that. And it actually inspired me to dive into my archives here and through my old long boxes and find my copy of detective comics, number 500. Uh, This is cover dated March of 1981. The big oversized anniversary issue, seven different stories and creative teams in here. And it has one of my very favorite Batman stories of all time to kill a legend written by Alan Burnett art by Dick Giordano and this is basically a sort of one of those sort of elseworld type stories that you could do in the pre-crisis days. So the Phantom Stranger shows up and he tells ba- Batman that there are alternate worlds, one where your parents died 40 years ago and you became Batman, our world where your di- parents died 20 years ago and you became Batman. There's also a world where your parents are just about to be killed and you can go save them. And Bruce Wayne, Batman, says, well, I have to go do that. I can't let my parents <laughs> keep dying. Oh, man. <laughs> and I can't let another eight-year-old deal with that like i can't let another kid suffer the way i did so they travel to alternate reality uh and they have a couple days to track down joe chill in the meantime robin goes to the library and figures out that this world has no superheroes there's no batman no superman there's no heroic fiction there's no Arthurian legend there's no zorro there's no heroes so robin says well maybe this kid's parent maybe bruce wayne's parents have to die so this world will have a batman will have a hero so nice it, one, all, Robin. it all comes to a head where like Robin's like, oh, I can't let innocent people die no matter what. They stop the mugger. And then the twist, spoiler for a uh, 36-year-old comic, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, spo- the twist at the end is that even though Batman saves Bruce Wayne's parents, Bruce Wayne, who's a spoiled rich kid, is inspired by Batman and starts reading uh, Sherlock Holmes books and starts training physically and starts he will become Batman but without having suffered the pain that Bruce Wayne did in our world. or huh. it's, it's a great story. It's actually one of my favorite Batman stories. If you can find a copy of it, it's, it's a great read. Um, That's great. Speaking of Batman and perfect Batman stories, Batman Annual Number 2, this is by Tom King, Lee Weeks, Michael Lark on art, colors by Betty Brightweiser and June Chung. This was a perfect Batman story. And even if you're not reading 
the main Batman series by Tom King, go pick this up because it's a great standalone story. It's all about how Batman and Catwoman, they're years ago, how they sort of, you know, fell in love without acknowledging it. It's all about their courtship in a weird way where she keeps breaking into Wayne Manor and he keeps catching her. And, um, but there's a thing is there's a great ending. The the epilogue of this book, and I won't spoil this one because it's not 36 years old. Um, <laughs> there's it's a hot great off epi- the press. <laughs> exactly. There's a great epilogue which feels like an Elseworlds type of story. Like there's, mm. there's, there's something that you couldn't do in mainstream continuity, I don't think, as a writer. But everything else about this book falls into Tom King's run. So I'm very curious to see how this is going to if it will pay off at some point in his run, or if it's just like a one-off alternate reality type story. But it feels oh, yeah. like it's in main continuity, but it, boy, oh boy, he goes somewhere where I did not expect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> man, I, I, could, we could do, I could do a whole mini-sode about Batman 36 and Batman oh, Annual yeah. number 2. Like, Do, yeah. do Lark oh. and Weeks share art duties, or how is that broken down? No, Weeks and Brightweiser do the main story and then sort of the epilogue ending stories by lark is, with colors okay, by Jim okay. Chung. yeah yeah um yeah i read 36 as well mike and uh boy oh boy that another perfect batman comic this is a great week for batman comics totally so totally well um, i'm over here saying I, I just i just finished war of jokes and riddles guys i've got the joel jones <laughs> art <laughs> sitting on my shelf jokes and riddles uh is it weird that I found that kind of a little underwhelming? I don't know. On one on one end, I saw the ending of that underwhelming. On the other end, the idea that, and how do I couch this vaguely enough, that it was over something seemingly so petty was also oddly fitting for someone who was obsessed with those sorts of things. Does that make here sense? you know what we can let's talk yeah. about this in the break yeah. and we'll put it after the credits for anyone that wants to be you know who yeah. has read it and is yeah. fine with spoilers how about yeah. that yeah that's sure. good yeah. okay all right um yeah i think the only other thing i read that i wanted to mention real quick was i also read justice league number 34 this is the new the first issue by the new creative team christopher priest and pete woods on art and this is really great it's kind of exactly what i wanted from a justice league story um the main focus here is on Batman, which is maybe why I liked it so much. But Batman being <laughs> being sort of overworked, and it ends up costing the Justice League something. Again, I won't spoil it too much, but Batman's overstressed, overworked. He slips up. He makes a huge mistake, and it's kind of implied, well, maybe you should take a break from the Justice League for a while. And it really feels like a change in tone from what I've been seeing from the Justice League for the past few years. And it, has, it reminds me of the Grant Morrison and uh, Graham Morrison JLA in that sense, where it feels like a big story. I think uh, Pete Wood's artwork is sort of stylized enough to make it look dynamic and exciting. So I'm excited for this new creative team on this book. So. Did, Woods, did Woods do the main cover on that book? Uh, yes, he did. Okay, yeah, it's definitely yeah. stylized. I, cool. I'm, I'm going to go out on a real limb here and say that it's going to piss some people off. <laughs> <laughs> I think it looks interesting and great, but I think some people are not going to find his art very uh, uh, crowd-pleasing. But, well, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned the J- the Graham Morrison run, and he had Howard Porter on art, and that was stylized yeah. at that time, too. And oh, I think yeah. I want a Justice League book that feels different and feels unique. Yeah, And doesn't just feel absolutely. like another superhero book. So I think this fits the this fits my aesthetic perfectly. So, yeah. 
I'll yeah, it's that. it's nice to have weird art on like flagship books. I mean, it pisses totally. some people off, and maybe that's why I love it more. But um, yeah. <laughs> and Christopher Priest on 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 writing, that's great. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Now going by Priest, apparently, from what Paul and I discovered true, yesterday, yeah. he's just yeah. going by Priest now. <laughs> it's sort of pen name. Weird. So yeah. Well, Mike, tell us about what you read. Uh. Yeah, I I've been kind of up and down. I I've been super tired because I've been sick, um, so I haven't didn't want to read a lot. But then Friday and Saturday, I was like, "Fuck it, whatever." I'm gonna read comic books all day. Um, so I sat down and read um, kind of an array of stuff. Some of this I read earlier in the week, whatever. But um, I read Apartment Hunting, which is a Comicsology submit book that I picked up just on a whim. It looked I liked the cover, I liked the interior art. Uh, it's the most literal title ever because it's about <laughs> someone who literally hunts apartments, okay. like with a gun. Oh, you <laughs> do mean it like that? Oh, it's, wow! Yeah. Like with a gun. It wow. is. I don't. I don't. It's a really weird book, not just from the concept. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's. It's got a strange kind of anticlimactic ending, but in a in a satisfying way, mm-hmm. and that seems kind of weird but i would recommend everyone check it out it's kind of a cool concept the way they play around with some ideas are kind of cool um it's really short it's 22 pages i think you can get it for a dollar um on comiXology so check that out if you if you want something very odd that that's new um (laughs) the i also read delicious in dungeon volume three this is by ryuku q or ryuku kui i'm gonna say i this is a hard one but uh this is this is my favorite new manga it's it's about a bunch of adventurers who are traveling through a dungeon and in order to survive they have to eat the monsters and the plants that exist within the dungeon um <laughs> volume three features a giant kraken awesome. uh and in the previous volume they ate a kelpie which is essentially a water horse like it's a horse that hangs out near pools of water and tries to drown you <laughs> so they kill it and they eat it uh it's it's a really cool like very intricate book and it's something that i would have never put two and two together for um but it makes a lot of sense it it's really well designed like all of the animals and plants are very detailed the cooking sequences are very very specific and you get all these cool little blurbs and cute things all over the place if you're looking for like a new manga and you don't want to just read like teenage boys fighting other adults and monsters this is a really cool like semi-adult oriented book about cooking and it's got a fantasy twist to it and that that to me is like the best part it's basically combining things that i never thought i'd loved together like cooking manga sounds cool fantasy manga sounds cool putting them together is perfect it's a perfect (laughs) mixture do you learn like real cooking methodology as well? No. Just like all the other okay. Well yeah. to well to a certain extent because there are some like things that you could apply. Like they cook fish and they cook seaweed and they cook, you know, mushrooms and things like that, because these are also monsters, right? <laughs> so right. they talk about, you know, how you would cut a, a, this thing up to say, Oh, you want to make sure to cut out the barbs of this thing because you wouldn't want to eat that and that, that would go the same for like a fish you would find. Hmm. Um so I there is some like slight cooking inspiration but i mean like any manga like this isn't really directed towards how to teach you know this isn't a cookbook it's just like a fun story but they do this really cool thing where and i think i talked about it on the show where they at the end of each meal they show you what kind of um benefit you're getting out of it whether it be carbs or fat or protein or energy and so on and so forth um so it's really cool like really go check this book out like if you could find it at the library it is so fun 
yeah, it's and it's and it's a manga. You know, we don't get these types of books in the United States, um, <laughs> unless you want to talk about Super Space Battle Lunchtime, but that's a different book. Uh, I'm beginning to wonder if Mike actually read anything this week, or if he just hit the Nyquil PM a little too hard and <laughs> some sort we're, of fever dream. We're getting to sit through his hallucinations. Yeah, I read yeah. three volumes of this real book. No, I just read one volume. Is the third volume? It's good. Um, I also read. As the Crow Flies, this is a book by Melanie Gilman. Uh, it's supposed, I guess it, I didn't realize this when I when I backed it on Kickstarter, but it's the first part of an ongoing series. This is actually a webcomic. Uh, the story is about uh, a young girl who's black and queer, and she goes to this Christian camp um, where the it's a bunch of white girls hyping, hiking up this mountain um, to discover feminist ideals from way back when. And there's a whole bunch of discussion about... What does it actually mean? Is this like, is the purity that they're talking about really something that can apply to a person of color? It's a really interesting mm. book um, that kind of had me thinking a lot as I was reading it. Uh, I really want to read part two because the end of volume one, while it ends a chapter or a, an act of the story, was very dissatisfying because I really wanted to know what the next literal page was going to be. Um, so kudos to her for making me like drool for this book um but i was really bummed that it ended the way that it did because there's like it's right on the cusp of a big story point so i'm excited to see how the next volume comes i don't know if there's gonna be another volume or whatever i'll just have to read it online or something but it's very very good um if you're looking for something that is kind of younger oriented because i think this is something you could give to a teenager and they would really like resonate with it Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's it's very well well done like heart like the binding is really nice the pages are um Really beautiful, and it's all done in uh, colored pencil, which I thought was really cool. Hmm. Um, let's see. I also read Black Bolt number eight. Um, not too much to say about this book other than it's fucking incredible. <laughs> Saladin Ahmed and Christian Ward have been killing it, and this book makes me sad, and I love that. It's yeah. constantly breaking my heart. <laughs> um, finally, uh, I did read Pluto, the Urasawa Tezuka Volume One. This is a series, uh, an eight-volume series written by Naoki Urasawa. It's based on Osamu... <laughs> I'm going to try to butcher, not butcher all these names. I apologize. <laughs> uh, this is based on the Osamu Tezuka series Astro Boy, a.k.a. The Atom, I believe. Or, mm-hmm. yeah, I think is the Japanese name. There's uh, the specifically based around the story arc, The Greatest Robot on Earth. Um, and the story itself is named after the arc's chief villain, Pluto. Now, it's not really a spoiler so much as... You are the the story follows uh, Gesicht. I think it's like a German name. He's a Europol detective who's one of the seven great robots in the world. Um, when a human and one of the great robots, Mont Blanc, are found dead with horns in quotes near their heads, uh, Gesicht starts his investigation into what he believes to be a serial killer, specifically targeting the great robots of the world. <laughs> this book's fucking beautiful. Urasawa's art is some of the best manga art I've ever seen. And Astro Boy shows up in Volume 2, but he is referred to as The Atom, which is his Japanese name. I cannot wait to read Volume 2. I have it sitting on my shelf. I'm so pumped. This book is fucking cool. It's like a noir detective story about robots that's based in an Astro Boy world. And, like, Astro Boy is super happy-go-lucky. And to think that they took this kind of dark twist and 
in, in a, a dark storyline and like amplified it to its max level. Um, from my understanding, the greatest robot on Earth story is pretty dark in that mm. this monster is literally going around killing all of these various robots and Astro Boy's on that list. So it's like a very serious story that happened very early in Astro Boy. Um, so I'm, part of me is like, I'm going to finish this arc and then I want to go back and read that arc in mm-hmm. Astro Boy just to see how they compare. Because supposedly they... Like, Urasawa does a fantastic job adapting this. Um, and having never read Astro Boy, I'm really excited to get into that huge pantheon of story, of stories and characters and stuff. Yeah. So Yeah, this is definitely one of the few manga that I, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about. It has a great reputation, and it's one that I should probably read at some point. So Yeah. Yeah. It's superbly, like, can't even get over how cool of a book it is. Um, <laughs> just like a really good detective story. Yeah. Um, interesting. Anyways. Let's move on. Let's talk about comics that are coming out this upcoming week. Comic books are being released on December 13th, 2017. What are you guys excited for? I'm really excited for my picks. So, Paul, <laughs> let's start with you. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pick uh, Mr. Miracle number five. Um, obviously, it's Mr. Miracle. This book's been pretty much perfect across the board so far. Uh, but issue four, without being too spoilery, added a whole new wrinkle to the new gods mythology that I did not expect. And I really, really enjoyed that because I think most, I think most writers don't quite know what to do with the new gods. They're tough characters to really do anything with. And I like that Tom King on one hand is doing a very simple focused story about Mr. Miracle and Barda at one, on one hand, at the other hand, it's also this huge story about what happened to Darkseid and the High Father and the overarching mythology of the New Gods and this weird tension between those two focuses. And issue four, you have Scott Free uh, learn something about himself, which completely changes the character in a way. And I think that where that where they could go with that for the next twelve issue or next uh, whatever t- till the end of the run and when it ends in twelve issues could be really exciting and could actually do something fun and interesting with the new gods. And it's been a while since anyone's done that. So this book's still perfect and I can't wait to get my hands on issue five. For sure. What about you, Nick? Uh, for me, it's me violating the rule and, and, and listing two books. It's <gasps> regrettably, I know it's, it's not like these two books are like, gosh, these two books are going to be great. And I, I, I just can't pick. It's more like, these are two issues of two books I normally like, and I'm kind of not that pumped about either, but not that pumped to an equal degree. So here we are. Um, <laughs> so you have two half-hearted picks two that add up to one full-hearted um, pick. You know what? That's probably the logic here. Um, <laughs> so uh, you've got Grass Kings number 10. This is, of course, Matt Kint and Tyler Jenkins. Um, and this uh, arc of Grass Kings has been largely about telling um, origin stories of the people that live in the Grass Kingdom um, with a little bit of a small forward momentum towards, um, well, we're not going to talk about the other plot because obviously that's the big reveal of uh, the end of Arc 1, so we'll leave it at that. But, you know, it's, it's origin stories, it's fine. I wish there was more forward trajectory, but I get that... Um, you know, Kent is trying to not overload us um, with exposition, and so it just comes, 
just sort of sprinkled out, you know, issue to issue. Um, on the other end of this, you've got um, Bloodshot Salvation number four. This, of course, is Jeff Lemire um, and Miko Suwayan. And this issue is largely about Rampage um, and his backstory. Uh, and he, of course, is sort of like the evil slash, you know, evil twin counterpart of Bloodshot that we really don't know that much about, um, at least in terms of the version that's been presented in the Valiant 2012 reboot. So I, I'm sure both will be good issues. I'm sure I'll be pleasantly surprised, but at least up front and from the one or two sentences I've read about each, I'm like, eh, you know, okay, I'll, I'll probably <laughs> like these, but I'm not like waiting, you know, on, on pins and needles, you know, to see what happens. So... Gotcha. We'll we'll catch up with you next time you're on the show, and you can tell us about how awesome these issues both were. Hated both of them. No. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Mike? Oh yeah, for me this week, I'm excited about one book, and the other one I can't believe is actually a thing. Um, (laughs) The book that I'm actually excited about is Animosity Number Eleven. This is Marguerite Bennett and Raphael De La Torre. Um, De La Torre. I'm probably. I'm sorry. Uh, this book is... <laughs> Animosity is an interesting book because I never want to read it. <laughs> I never want to actually sit down and read this book. But every time I do, it pulls me back in and I'm like, give me the next issue. Like, I really need to bank issues on this book because I never feel like the urge. Like, I'm never like really excited. Like, yeah, another issue of Animosity is out. But after every single issue, I'm just like, hell to the yeah, what else is happening? It raises so many questions in my mind about... What is an what is a being with thought? Because you know this is the book mm-hmm. that if you don't if you don't know what animosity is, this is the book where one day something happens we don't know, and all of the animals on Earth suddenly gain the ability to speak and act with at the with the same intelligence as humans do. So you know there are smarter animals and there are dumber animals, just like there are smarter humans and dumber humans. But on the whole, all of the animals on Earth can now speak and can now, you know, you do complex actions and they have context and they they act as if you like a person would act, which is interesting. Um, so there's a constantly a lot of questions. And in this most recent arc, they introduce this concept, and this isn't really a spoiler, but the there there is a colony of bees that is that are hanging out inside of this barn or hanging out outside of this dam and um without going into too many details about it but there's the bees themselves have sentience to a certain degree they not no individual bee has complete sentience it's a hive hive does yeah it's a hive mind sort of and it kind of like begs this question of like well they're just insects what does that mean you know and one of the big problems that this book runs into um or at least the characters in this book run into is that a lot of animals rely on meat so what do you do when you want to eat something like a rabbit but that rabbit is as smart or as sentient as you are Mm -hmm. um so like i said it raises a lot of questions it makes you think a lot about like you your humanity it makes you think a lot about how you treat animals and other individuals and even bugs which too i'm like even even a mosquito like yeah <laughs> kind of it's it's interesting so animosity number 11 i'm excited the current arc is very good i don't want to there's no real details to go to discuss about it i just wanted to talk about this book for a second because it's it's always a good book it's always a good read uh, and i have to credit marguerite bennett for for being able to do that every month because i don't think a lot of books have that um, I can't say there was an issue of this book that I disliked. Um, so kudos to her. 
The other book that I wanted to just quickly mention because I cannot believe it fucking exists <laughs> is How the Trump Stole Christmas, number one, from Antarctic Press. I don't know if this is a one-shot. <laughs> oh, so, man. It's, the, the cover is well, unbelievable. You should go look it up. It's fucking insane. I just can't believe it exists. Geez. Or will exist. <laughs> so. Merry Christmas, everyone. I don't know if you could, I, Mike, if you're still being surprised by things in the year 2017, I, I don't know what to tell you. So. Our show this week is an interesting topic because, you know, movies are always really fun. So we're going to talk about comic book movies that you maybe didn't know were comic books. And now that's our clickbait title for the episode. <laughs> but really what we want to talk about here is when do comic book movies work? When don't they work? And specifically, we want to talk about non-superhero films. Because I think we could spend all day talking about the Marvel franchise, the DC franchise, and we don't we don't want to do that. You've got a hundred other podcasts out there that are talking about that. What we want to talk about today instead is those books that are really, really cool, and they get adapted, and you go crazy because it was your indie fave. It was something that you never would have thought could have been adapted, and yet it was. So we've got a huge list of movies. Nick Nick did some actual research for this episode, so kudos to him. Um, <laughs> I went to Wikipedia. Let's just call it what it was. <laughs> yeah, let, let's... Okay, sure. Nick went to Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't, so I will say you did more research than me. Um, <laughs> Sure. But I guess, so, just to think, it, you know, when we think of a lot of these non-superhero movies, things that come to mind for me um, are some that, Nick, you have listed, so I'm going to steal some, but, like, That's Scott fine. Pilgrim, Ghost World, Jonah Hex, Judge Dredd, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, all of these movies are actually based on comic books. And what's interesting is that in some of these cases, they follow the book to a T, and in other cases, like, for something like Sin City, or maybe a 300, they follow the book to a T, like panel by panel even. Visually yeah. as well as narratively, yeah. Yeah, and in other, for other movies, they don't follow the book at all. They use it as a very weak basis, <laughs> and then they make, point, the, yeah. they make the story whatever they want. So, yeah. um, or I guess weak starting point, thank you. So I, I guess when does this work, when doesn't it work? Um, Paul, Nick, I know you guys both have thoughts on this, so maybe mm -hmm. we'll start with you, Paul, because you had an argument in the, in the break that I really liked. Yeah, well, I th I've always held that the best or most successful for my tastes, and of, of course, that it's all subjective art forms, but, but my, I think the most successful... It's not. Paul's right. Okay, Whatever I'm he right. thinks, the rest of you should be getting in line with. He told me this during the break. <laughs> um, the most successful comic book adaptation from a comic to a movie, I've always said, was Ghost World, because it actually captured the tone and pacing of the comic in a way that most superhero comics just can't, you know? So our superhero movies can't. But you're and also think, biased because it's got Steve Buscemi <laughs> and Thor Birch in it. Come on. And, <laughs> and, I, I, and I love Daniel Klaus. I and mean, Daniel Klaus is yeah. one of my favorite cartoonists. So if you haven't read the original Ghost World, what's interesting is that in Daniel Klaus's Ghost World story, it's a very short story, but Steve Buscemi's character in the movie, he only is on like one page of the actual comic he's a mm -hmm. very oh. small part very minor character and i think what makes the movie successful is that their ability to take a short story and turn it into a feature-length film by adapting it because there's no they're not going to have fans of daniel klaus on twitter complaining that the characters don't look like they do in the comics or it's it's not the right actors you know it's just it, there's not the expectations of being 
uh, true to the comic the way there are with a lot of superhero movies. I, I mean, we should say that Thor Birch does look exactly like the character Enid Koslaw. They somehow <laughs> right. managed to luck out in that sense. But yeah. But I think what makes that movie so successful is that you can watch it without any knowledge of the comic. I'm sure there's plenty of people that saw that movie. Well, I don't think many people saw that movie. Let me amend that. <laughs> there's, there's the real, you know, yeah. end, uh, end result. Yeah. yeah. There was think, a weird section in my blockbuster, and that's how I saw it. So hmm. maybe that's really? how Really? Was that what it was titled? Weird? It really? was called Weird <laughs> wow. Slash Indie. I'm wow. not even joking. That's funny. Yeah. I love but, it that those two get together. Anyway, that's that's I like that. I love that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, Blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think most people that probably picked that movie up probably didn't know of the original Daniel Klaus comic because that wasn't right. even like a... It was published in his like self-published 8-Ball series. It wasn't even like a, a standalone graphic novel or anything until mm-hmm. after the movie came out. And I think that is an example of where a successful adaptation... It, uh, an ad- adaptation is successful because it's able to change the source material or deviate from the source material enough where uh, Terry Zykov, the director, was able to capture the tone of the story even if it changed the original comic away from you know what it was. So mm-hmm. I think yeah. adaptation, you need to have that sort of change. And I just think a lot of big blockbuster movies, there's a hesitation to do that. Or if they do do that, there's a fan backlash. So I think a smaller indie movie like Ghost World is an example of a very successful comic book adaptation. See, what's interesting about that example is that Ghost World was released before the huge prevalence of discussion on the internet you know there was no twitter there wasn't facebook there was maybe you know forums that you could go to and so if there was fan backlash maybe it wasn't seen or heard at all and Mm -hmm. news media or media sources definitely were not reporting on it because it was just oh it was an internet forum and who can trust that (laughs) you know yeah you could maybe find it on imdb but they killed their message boards thanks a lot guys (laughs) i mean that being said i that being said, I do agree with you, Paul. I think that that, that movie works really well. Um, mm. I haven't read the graphic novel, like the collected uh, edition, since I was in high school. So right. um, maybe I need to go back and see how they compare. Cause, but I remember liking the movie and liking the story like independently. Even though I knew that they were the same, it felt yeah. like they were two separate stories about the same thing, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. When you can, I think that is the mark of a successful adaptation where... It is something that you can watch, you can read the comic, you can see the movie, and you can they can exist as two different examples of the same thing. One's not trying to outdo the other, or feels right. like a, we're just going to take the comic and put it on the screen. It's like, no, we're actually going to change it and make it something unique and different while staying true to that spirit. So I think it's a yeah. really hard thing to pull off, and it's easier when it is a smaller indie-type comic or story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Another book that I feel like does that, or another movie, I should say, that does that, is the From Hell movie. Mm-hmm. Um, from I haven't I never read all of from, from Hell. I borrowed it from someone and then never finished it. Uh, <laughs> sure. It's a very long book. It's a very heavy book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but from from what I read, um, the movie is a totally different thing. Totally different thing. Like they, it's all about Jack the Ripper. Sure, Johnny Depp yeah. is plays you know the key investigator. But other than that, it it doesn't really feel like the same book. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, yeah, they, they totally went a different direction. The From Hell movie is okay. The From Hell book is very long. Um, <laughs> I think we're on opposite ends of this, Mike, because I've actually read the book and I haven't seen the movie, um, <laughs> but I know how the movie was received, and I've been I've been on Wikipedia again. I mean, I'm always there researching, and um, I've I've read about the movie, and uh, oh oh boy, mm. uh, it's a great book, by the way, for those who who are interested in like yeah, um, I'm not trying to knock history. it, yeah, yeah. 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 And I think, well, that's an interesting example because that's, I think, 
the problem of taking a book that's very dense and detailed. How do you tackle and very something like that? And how do you make that into a two-hour movie? It's it's like yeah, you can't. Like that's that's like a that's like an ongoing series is what you would need for From Hell. You would need like a quality BBC like yeah. It's that's not a two hour movie. It's not going to happen. Right. But I think what you guys were getting at earlier, another sort of strength of these movies is that most people don't leave the theater of uh, a history of violence or a road to perdition. Although, I mean, those, <laughs> anyway, we want I mean, obviously you wouldn't leave the theater. Those movies are really old, but you, you get my point. You, you, if, if you see those movies, you don't finish it and go, well, geez, you know, I have to go read the comic. You might not even go, well, geez, I wonder if there's a book based on this. Oh, so, see, I, I did that actually <laughs> for both of those movies. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah weird I, as hell. No one I else am is very gonna, weird, but I think yeah. I'm in the very, 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 very small minority. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, no, nobody says, oh, I have to go pick up the book or I have to do whatever. And, and that's because with these comic book movies, uh, you have a, a large amount of the audience, probably eight out of ten. I'd probably say nine out of ten, like, don't consistently read or really don't read comic books at all. And so, you know, they you, know, you have some people that want to go home, buy the book and, and draw a comparison. Whereas with something like Ghost World, you know, uh, how many people read the book? So mm-hmm. no one's going to be like, oh, this wasn't accurate or that wasn't accurate. Um, I, I think what works so well about these um, adaptations is that for the large amount of people that are seeing these movies, they don't even know the other thing exists and there isn't like a natural connection to it. You know, most people that are know about one or the other just haven't even explored the, the other end of that spectrum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And History of Violence is interesting too because that's, I mean, it's a, David Cronenberg movie so you already have like a a major respected director making a movie that kind of fits his oeuvre anyway so you wouldn't think yeah. it's an adaptation to begin with right so yeah. I mean, that's kind of an oddball in that sense it's, it's, it's the exact same thing with Scott Pilgrim and Edgar Wright like when right. you look at how yeah. Edgar Wright shoots movies and does visuals and his general tone and sense of humor and and his way of is sort of equally mixing like gritty realism and fantasy like Scott Pilgrim fits the bill. I mean, now, in the same vein, I think Scott Pilgrim managed to get a certain amounts of publicity as a graphic novel to a point that I think a good amount of people were aware that it was a graphic novel, but maybe yeah. maybe not all. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if if you're into Edgar Wright movies, you're already in the know on that. Like, that's that's probably that your stuff, jam yeah. already anyway. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. the Edgar Wright mindset, so... <laughs> See, what's interesting about History of Violence and even Road to Perdition, I love those two examples because I watched both of those movies and then I read both of the books and the books in the movies are like completely different. History of Violence goes so much further and there's so much more complexity to the story. The same with Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition, like the movie only covers the first quarter of the story. And Mm. and I'm, I'm kind of simplifying it but it feels like the road to perdition only covers like a quarter of the story because so much more mafia involvement so much more discussion about all of the various things that this guy and his son did um and i mean kudos to tom hanks and that i don't remember who the kid was in that movie for doing it because i thought that that movie was pretty okay um i liked it but uh the book was totally different animal um it's a lot like it's a lot read more like a noir story and the movie (laughs) didn't really have that feel well, with, yeah. with something like From Hell, like we were talking about earlier, and like you were discussing with Road to Perdition, uh, there inevitably becomes a point with a lot of these things, obviously not Ghost World because it was smaller, but with things like From Hell or, or Road to Perdition, you you have to decide if you're going to 
tackle the whole thing or if you're going to make cuts or, or, you know, you know, leave stuff on the cutting room floor <laughs> and with something with From Hell, like, I get it. You you want to make a, a Jack the Ripper movie. Maybe these guys genuinely thought they could, you know, tackle all of From Hell. Maybe that was their just disillusionment. But, like, yeah. if you just want to <laughs> make a Jack the Ripper movie, just, like, do that. Like, sometimes it feels <laughs> like, why do you need... Okay, the cynical part of me realizes that, like, if you go with something that's already been established as a brand and it's already been, you know, that it has some amount of name recognition and you don't have to literally come up with a new uh, title for things and everything, that there are benefits to that. But it's like, why do you need to go grab Alan Moore's, like, book if you're going to use yeah. so little of it. Well, this right. w- this way they yeah. don't have to write the na- adaptation of the movie. Instead, <laughs> the adaptation already exists. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't... It you baffles know, me sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I think for these type of, we're kind of talking about sort of indie type stories in comics right now. And I think there's a whole other discussion about other books because as a child of the 90s, I definitely remember the small boom of comic book based movies from the 90s, like The Mask, Men in Black, uh, The Phantom, all that stuff. But yeah. I think what's interesting about these small type movies we're talking about right now, like Ghost World, um, is that they they come out of a genuine love for the source material. And I think when that comes through, that's what makes for a good movie. Like American Splendor, again, I don't know how many people actually saw that movie, but I'm sure there are people that saw that movie. (laughs) All right, I saw it six times, so that's all of them. It was just me. Um, (laughs) No, I, uh, I don't know how many people... I'm sure most people saw the movie maybe knew of Harvey Pekar, but I can't imagine many people... I can't imagine people going to see that movie because they wanted to see Paul Giamatti or it looked quirky or they got in for free, whatever. And not knowing anything about Harvey Picard, they would get a really complete story from that that movie because it was made out of love for the source material. Same mm-hmm. thing with um, A Ghost World and a recent film that just came out, My Friend Dahmer, which is based on the graphic novel by Durf Backdurf. Yeah. And I don't know if... What, what's interesting for me when I was watching My Friend Dahmer you could tell that they really loved the comic, but I had this moment where there were certain scenes that I remembered from Durf's comic much more vividly than they came across on the movie screen. And I think there were other scenes that in the movie were far more disturbing than they were portrayed in the comic. It was kind of interesting to kind of compare the two in my head as I watched the movie. And I think I had a moment where I was watching that movie and I thought, well, this is a good movie, but it's just a movie about, Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Because the book right. is about Durf Backdurf knowing Jeffrey Dahmer in high school and being the head of the Jeffrey Dahmer fan club in high school and, you know, just knowing Jeffrey Dahmer as a teenager. The book feels much more like a memoir and a deeply personal story. Durf's artwork is very idiosyncratic and cartoony in a way. Yeah. And it mm-hmm. creates a tension with the story. And I just felt like the the comic came across much more nuanced. As much as I like the movie, there was something that just could not be captured by the filmmakers, even though they clearly loved the book and tried to like create this similar tone and feel, it was just missing that sort of personal take that the comic book had. And again, that's something you can only have with a sort of self-published indie comic that's one guy or one person drawing it and writing it. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting well, that, that that distinction that I saw between the two. Did they did they do narration in the movie? No, and I think that was okay. the one thing because oh. the, the comic is very much from Durf's point of view. Yeah, and the movie yeah. well, just kind you, of feels different, separate from that. You heard it here first, folks. Fol- films just stop trying. 
Paul Jaisley. <laughs> exactly. Just they're not just knock it off. It's comics not working. are just better. Comics are just better. <laughs> you guys had like a century or a little century plus to figure it out. Just just mm-hmm. stop. Movies were yeah. done. Um, <laughs> in the same vein, I uh, as part of Nick White's quote unquote research, um, I watched V for Vendetta a couple nights ago and then attempted to read the whole book before realizing that um, the book is huge. It's labor and it's dense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my like goodness no <laughs> and um so i watched all the movie because like it's a movie i can handle that part i got that down pat i've been working on that <laughs> and um <laughs> and i made it through about i think about 80 or 90 pages of the book and obviously i think for me at least and i know people feel this way frequently about game of thrones as well i think the movie actually did a really good job of slimming down the cast and removing a lot of the superfluous characters. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, Alan Moore wants to show you every little working cog and, and, and mechanic within this, um, I forget, I think it's called like Norse Wind or whatever the government's name is, the government fascist coalition. Yeah, uh, and yeah. He wants to show you every working mechanism of it, which which is mm-hmm. fine. Um, but they, in my mind, really adequately slim that down for the film while still retaining the idea that you've got this huge mechanism that's that's existing uh and 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 i thought they did a really good job with that and obviously um i think most people um also went into that movie perhaps not having any idea that they were watching a a comic book movie even though i would say that movie feels more quote-unquote conventional comic booky than than others if you mm-hmm. if you read the book and you and you watch the movie um the v in the movie at least for me was more um brutal more driven to violence um and violent acts whereas the v in the book seemed to sometimes be a little bit more like he was um like messing with his prey before killing it yeah. um like uh, i don't know if you guys remember but which is, like which is worse you yeah, know like, right yeah, yeah. right well he's like more like like it's very he's he's much more like waxing poetic quite literally and and philosophical and and quoting macbeth until the end you know in 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 the book and obviously film goers are going to have a very low tolerance of that but like when he when he kills the voice, you know the guy who's basically like the Alex Jones of the movie. He literally, I think he just poisons him in the shower, or they find him dead in the shower, and that's mm-hmm. and that's it. But in the book, um, you find out like this was the guy in charge of the camp that V was being tested on at. And minor spoilers for like a 1988 graphic novel. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so he kidnaps the guy and he dresses him up in a prisoner's outfit and he makes him like he has like a part of his house that's like looks like the camp that he was in and he you right. know it does this whole. I mean, it's very theatrical, theatrical, which is fitting for how V is in the book. You know, he's sort of a showman and. Um, everything is kind of, you know, very acted out. Um, but in the movie, they're like, yeah, we're not going to make you believe that he kidnaps the guy and, you know, well, has playtime at the house, right? I mean, in, in mm-hmm. the, but you got to, I think in the context of the movie, they wanted to save that big reveal for the end, yeah. right? They wanted, they wanted that whole scene with Natalie Portman to be way more powerful. And I think if they had shown their hand early, it would have been like a... a oh, you mean with kidnapping her when you yeah. find out that <laughs> she was kidnapped by him. Yeah, yeah, to have that happen twice would be a little, you know, uh, 
I have different rooms in my house set up for different, you know, <laughs> you know, theater plays <laughs> yeah. I'm going to put yeah. on. Yeah, <laughs> I, I see what you mean. And, and that's what I wrestled back and forth with, with a lot of different things. But it made a lot of the choices made sense. Like, of course, they aged up the role because I believe the, um, Nellie Portman's character was like 16 and was just yeah. like, you know, trying to prostitute herself at the beginning of the book. And in the movie, they make her like 20-something and she's working at the news propaganda agency. Um, mm. So they they make that change. But you're like, well, why'd you do it? Well, there obviously are reasons about, you know, not being the, the film, not wanting to handle some of the more icky, gross, you know, shit about the real world that Alan Moore was, you know showing but also um by aging up evie he created a character who was capable of at least having some remembrance of what the world was like before everything changed whereas alan moore's character actually um was so young if i remember if i remember all this right that she actually didn't she she had no knowledge right exactly which made a very different character and which made a very different um in some ways, a very different sort of developing story from there. So I, I thought it was interesting to see how how they did some of those choices, and and yeah. they to each his own they worked, you know, and that's right. that's a success yeah. story right there when you when you make the adaptations that um, suit the suit your story, especially in terms of time constraints. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the biggest one, of course, with all yeah. of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Paul. Well, I was going to I was going to talk about Judge Dredd. And oh, absolutely. Go Dread or Judge okay. Dread, which, or well, both. Well, I want to talk about one? both because I think that's kind of, you know, we're, I think we have two different topics here that are somewhat related. This idea that on one hand, for a successful adaptation, it has to be a pure love of the source material. On the other hand, there's a desire to change it, streamline it, and make it more suitable for audiences. And I think your success or failure as an ad- adaptation kind of falls between those two extremes in a way because the Judge Dread film that came out in the 90s starring Sylvester Stallone. I mean, it's a terrible movie, but it would have been a terrible movie no matter what it was based on. You know, it was just kind of made for crass uh, commercial success. You have Sly Stallone, who, you know, famously doesn't want to wear a mask, even though the whole point of Judge Dredd is he never seen without his helmet on. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and this story is just convoluted. It does borrow enough from the source material to be somewhat interesting if you've read, read Judge Dredd. The fact that mm-hmm. Dredd, uh, Judge, Joe Dredd is a clone and he has a brother and all this stuff and... But it, it's everything about Wait, the what? movies. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know Wait, Judge, Judge Dredd is a clone? We oh, need some on, Judge really? Dredd history. Sorry. We need to not like, need to drop I've some read, knowledge. I've read like the first like three. When When is this revealed? Because I've like read at least the first three original collection volumes. Is this like later down the line? I want to say it's pretty early. I mean, it's. Oh, well, you know. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Take my geek card. We're done. It was nice. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I, I guess, so if you don't know, Judge Dredd is a, is a clone of the first judge. Um, and then he has a brother named Rico. That's all in the. That's oddly all in the Sylvester Stallone movie. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, that movie is clearly designed just to make money, and it's designed to make money in the late '90s. So that's it's over the top and corny. Yeah, um, and it doesn't quite fit. And what's interesting is that Dread, the movie that came out, was it 2012 or 2015? That's maybe? right. Yeah, uh, the adaptation with Keith Urban. Not Keith Urban, Carl, Carl. Urban. Carl Sorry. Urban. Not the Keith no, Urban country would be singer. Great. Yeah. I would yeah. yeah. <laughs> Still Australian, but right. different different job. Well yes. they must be brothers, right, Urban? So Right, yeah. right. Um <laughs> what's interesting is that movie I think is a far more successful movie. It's a fantastic action movie. I mean it's one of the right. best action movies I've seen in a long time. But it's, is it that much of a dread movie? Right, and that's the, the question. It's like it does stay true more or less to the what people think of a Judge Dread comic, but 
Judd Short comics are very satirical and oftentimes very funny, mm-hmm. and there's no humor mm-hmm. in that movie. So I think that's a movie that someone that knows of Judd Dredd as a character but maybe hasn't read a bunch could watch and say, okay, that's a Judge Dredd movie. Not the Sly Sloan version, but Dredd. Mm-hmm. That's what I want from a Judge Dredd movie. And I really enjoyed it as a movie, but then I think it had to change enough of the comics to fit a modern audience's expectations of an action movie right which ultimately approved that trying to cater to an audience didn't really end up being uh dread strength regardless (laughs) yeah exactly yeah Yeah. but well i think what worked about that is they took one facet of dread and rolled with it which i mean first off was obviously a real adherence to dread as a character and i think they got that part totally right um, and they got the brutality and, like, the grossness and, like, the sometimes unbelievably disgusting, like, mutated and, and, and disgusting <laughs> violence of Dread. They got right. that part down, Pat, too. But, and, it, I mean, there were some subtle nods, too. Like, I love how all the apartment blocks and buildings are named after fucking celebrities and shit. Like, right. they're not naming yeah. shit after, like, presidents anymore. It's like, you know, Dolly Parton Way or, you know, Elvis <laughs> Block or whatever. And you, yeah, you yeah. saw, like, a little bit of that. Like, a little bit of that. A little bit. But, but, but not really. And, and I mean... Yeah. If if this had been like a strictly British production, maybe they would have been tempted. But right, yeah. if you're gonna try to sell this to Americans, not to blanket stereotype, but uh, <laughs> on the side of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, we don't handle some of that stuff so well. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. So my my question to you guys now is, um, you know, what movies were you surprised to find out were comics, or, or are you just like in the know on the pulse so hard <laughs> that you're never yeah. surprised by these movies? Because I know there's a handful that like really shocked me that mm-hmm. I couldn't believe were comic books before they were movie or before they were movies. I mean, like to to name a few just off the top of my head, um, or I should say in my notes, <laughs> uh, Mystery Men was a book that really surprised me was actually a comic book. Like it, it yeah. shouldn't surprise me because of how comic booky it is, but I just thought what a cool movie idea. <laughs> and then right. to find out that yeah. it's actually an, an older comic is, was actually really cool to know mm-hmm. that there was some lore that they based it off of and I fucking I still love that movie to this day. Um but like that was that was a big surprise to me. Men in Black was another one. Men in Black yeah. is huge. Um, yeah. Red was a surprise to me as well. Yeah. Um, and I was even into comic books at that point. I didn't even realize Same. that Red was a comic. Same. <laughs> totally. I yeah. Mean, did, was... did you guys have any? Well, for when I was a kid, I was delighted to find out that there were actual Rocketeer comics that I could read because I loved that movie. Oh, when nice. I was a kid. And then I also realized, wait, there's comics that aren't about Batman and Superman? What? So it's like this whole other world opened up in a weird way. Right. So that was a surprise to me as a kid. That's allowed? What? Um, So that was kind of interesting. And then a more recent example is um, Diary of a Teenage Girl, which um, I went to go see. My girlfriend wanted to go see it, so we went and saw it. And it's an autobiographical story, but it's based on an autobiographical comics. You actually see the girl sort of writing the comic that it's based on. So it becomes obvious that it's a comic, you know, while you're watching the movie. I didn't know but, that. But yeah, that's a fantastic movie. And I actually didn't know it was based on a comic until I saw it. And then, yeah, so I was a surprise. As as tuned into the comics world as I am, I can still be surprised by that. So, yeah. And Nick is silent because nothing you know, surprises him. Because nothing <laughs> surprises Well, I mean, here's the thing, okay? like this, And this is interesting. I find a lot of the non-superhero comics that are adapted into film tend to be overwhelmingly R-rated. A lot of them seem to be R-rated for for subject content. And so when I was an age that it would have surprised me, like, 
my parents were not going to let me see Judge Dredd. Like, I know I was sheltered to the point of not seeing The Mask as a child. Oh, uh, boy. You know, I was robbed of that experience. <laughs> hey, hey that, movie, that movie is tolerably bad, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, so at a time when it would have surprised me, like, I wasn't, I wasn't consuming those films anyway. Um, but uh, I mean, Men in Black for me is, is still like a big one. I, I mean, what's interesting about some of those is like Men in Black is literally based on like a a comic that has like three issues to its name, which is kind of like fascinating. (laughs) And even that they adapted real hard because like, I don't know if you've read much about the comic. I haven't. The agents are like way darker and like, they don't, they don't mind white people. Like it's take no chances. Any witnesses or anybody are like getting killed. Like everybody's oh, right, getting whacked, right, right, right. so it's a it's a way darker story from from what I've heard. Um, but but that one is still uh, one that I would consider like a bit of a surprise. I, I think it's possible that I think three hundred I didn't know at the time. Oh, as oh well. okay, okay. Like that was still um, that was still at a point where I wasn't really really into comics, and I probably saw some. I mean, the internet was still a you know big thing at that point so i think i saw some stuff there but otherwise 300 was like oh that was a comic book okay now i now i now i have a movie and a comic book that i don't want to um ever consume ever again so um (laughs) zing you got him men in black is men in black is kind of interesting example because that was a hugely successful movie i mean insanely successful did they make end up making two sequels to that yeah, yeah they did. I haven't the seen the third one. one yet. I have. I've seen all three of them. I mean, so that's that. I think shows uh, how you can be successful in an adaptation in a very different sense. As I was saying it before, mm-hmm. not, su- not a successful adaptation in adapting the source oh, material. Yeah. Successful in making money, which I guess is the most important thing for movies. Um, <laughs> right. Right. So I mean, they I, made like three mask movies. I'm pretty sure none of them featured Jim uh, Carrey after the first right. one. Yeah, uh, I think only one that followed. Yeah, the, 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 first the Jamie was, Kennedy. Yeah, Jamie one, Kennedy, son of the mask, son of mask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which. I mean, that raises a whole other topic of discussion, so maybe I should, shouldn't should mention it, but I'm going to anyway. Go ahead. Um, treating comics as just a source for, for intellectual property, I think. Ooh. Oh, sure. There's there's just, plenty of terrible books. I mean, the Phantom mm-hmm. movie, there's plenty of examples from history that have Tank terrible Girl. comic movies. Tank Girl. Well, actually, I have a soft spot for Tank Girl. Um, I any think movie that, would. Any movie that has both <laughs> Ice-T and Iggy Pop in it, I'm going to have to love. Um, okay. Well, I'll, 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 you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll put my neck on the line as well. I don't think Constantine is that bad of a movie. People, honestly. see, it's got that guy who always plays Russian dudes in it, and I fucking Stramare, love that guy. Peter yeah, Stramare. Sure, whatever. As, I don't know what his as, name is. The devil. Yeah, he's just always the Russian. <laughs> I fucking yeah. love that guy. I, and and it's got Tilda Swindon in it too. I I That's don't true. think that movie is terrible. Like it's a solid, it's a solid like five or six for me, but it's not like mm-hmm. a three. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's not R.I.P.D. level. Did you guys ever? See <laughs> I haven't that? seen that, no. but I've heard. Okay, I've heard I did things. Yeah. I did. Don't watch it. Well, I mean, that uh, speaks to my what well, the point I was I was making this idea of it just serving treating comics as a source of you know property. It was like yeah. Yeah. Jonah Hex. Clearly, no one who made Jonah Hex cared about that character or the comic at all. So right. I mean, this is just yeah. right. And which is kind of a shame. And I think I'm at this point now where I can see a trailer for a movie and basically say, 
I bet there's a Mark Miller comic that that's based on. Oh, so God. when I see the trailer for <laughs> this King is so King, sad, but so true. <laughs> I bet that's a comic, and I bet I know who wrote it. So. Yeah, well, I mean, you gotta. I mean, here's the other side of that coin, though. Some people are writing comics to make them into movies. Like exactly. Let's look at what Mark Miller's done. I mean, and I don't mean to shit on him. He's just the no. person to think of right now. The the Kingsman. Sorry, you've book. got the bullseye on your back. Sorry, you have all the money. <laughs> Sorry. So what's interesting about Kingsman, and I'll bring this up because there's a sequel movie that just came out or is coming out yeah months a few months back yeah it came out so kingsman that book i was buying it when it came out and because i knew it was like dave gibbons and mark millar and i was like shit yeah like let's do this um i was willing to give that a try because i was still riding kick-ass too thinking okay edgy little fuck bad yeah i was oh yeah supreme edge lord no i mean like don't get me wrong like mark miller's books they 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 satisfy some sort of visceral need for like blood and guts and over the primal top violence. terrible urges sure right mm-hmm. and it's I, and by no means are they all good and kingsman was a very convoluted book i don't think anyone's but, gonna think we were going to go there mike <laughs> yeah yeah okay so well anyway but kingsman was like a very convoluted book and the fact they were making it into a movie had me really on edge because i was confused how they were going to get all this licensed bullshit that mark millar threw into the whole book like he uh-huh. threw mm-hmm. so much licensed stuff into the story like just with like sideways referencing and stuff and it, it seemed weird that they were going to adapt it and so when they i saw the adaptation I was like, oh, this makes way more sense than the comic, and the movie's better than the comic, hands down. Like, it's like the Fight Club book, you know? It's like Fight Club. The Fight Club movie is better than the book. It's That's right. just plain and simple. Um, so, to see that they're doing a sequel, and then they're doing a follow-up book is kind of interesting. I don't know if this is Mark Miller's way of trying to bring people back to comics from movies, because if it is, I really like that. Yeah. If it's not, if it's just him trying to say, "Look, you can greenlight all my other books," like that's like it's like. Well, he's Damn he's launching him. book as part of his Netflix deal. He's launching books with Netflix as the publisher, right? Right. right. Which yeah. is really interesting. Yeah, to see totally where is. that's going to go because that I I think that that may be a step in a cool direction, maybe not the right direction, but a cool direction in terms of promoting comics along with the content that that, that they're based off of. Yeah. It um, might not be the guy I want doing it, but I think this <laughs> is the the step that could actually genuinely try to merge like comic and and um, you know, uh TV narrative in a, in a way that might actually not feel superficial and flimsy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, we did the whole episode of, you know, talking about the ad- adapted versions of movies and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, it's comics. And, those, you know, the, I don't think I can think of any of those outside of that one Star Wars book um, that everyone references and says is great um, that Greg Rucka did um, that did that do a good job of adapting a movie or a, or a TV show um, in a serialized comic form or even just a collected edition form. Um, it's, it's really tough to think of any that actually work. And so if Mark Millar's trying to actually you know, st- sidestep that and say, let's do this side by side, get a new issue with every episode or something. I think that's a really cool way to encourage people to read more comics. And that's, that's only beneficial for the medium. <laughs> right. And for us, right. To talk about them. So. And for us to talk shit oh. about Mark Miller even more. I mean, that interview like, is never happening. Though. I don't mean to like totally like d- bag on the guy. Cause I, you know, he's done, I think, a lot to make comic books more mainstream, and that's beneficial to a certain extent. If it's getting yeah. someone in the door of reading comics, I think that's a that's a positive step. Right, right. Yeah. It just, just I think for a lot content. of people, 
Yeah, yeah. I think for a lot of people like ourselves, and if you like M- Mark Miller, that's fine. That's totally fine. But I it, think yeah, some and of it us totally see is. him as a, a stepping stone of taste. Uh, it's something you know you genuinely liked and enjoyed at one point, but maybe you don't really like anymore. On that note, there's a new Kickass on the way. I just bought previews yesterday. <laughs> oh yeah, I saw that. <laughs> Get psyched. <laughs> um. Okay. Well, you know we've. I, I think we've kind of maybe talked as much as we could talk without going into any further deep analyzation of other movies and stuff. Um, so let's wrap this up. Let's talk about where people can find us on the internet. Let's start with you, Nick. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Death Star Plans. That's pretty much it. That's how I like it. What about you, Paul? <laughs> uh, I'm on Twitter at Ohaipauly. You can also hear me talk about professional wrestling on the Spike Pile Driver podcast. We're on Twitter at Spike Pile Pod. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Rappin, and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast. We retweet a bunch of random things and like things at 3 in the morning. Um, <laughs> it's my favorite time to be on Twitter. And we post a poll every Friday, such as the one I posted this week, who is the best sidekick? The, res- the, the answers will surprise you, and who's winning <laughs> will surprise you even more. Um, <laughs> I'll just that say that. That's great. <laughs> I still have to vote, so I'll have to go check that out. Um, You can also find our Goodreads group. We do a monthly Goodreads episode, and we have a whole Goodreads group run by the wonderful Kate on the site. We have weekly threads. We discuss comics we've been reading. You can vote for Book of the Month and all that. Lots of fun over there on Goodreads. You can also go to our website, ircbpodcast.com. We post links to the episodes, our weekly poll lists, and other stuff, show notes, all that over there. In addition, please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. If you uh, go to the iTunes page where our show is featured, uh, you can go and give us a rating there. And at least from what they've told us, it matters and it's greatly important. Totally. Uh, <laughs> it really is. I mean, like, if you're, yeah, voting, that's if you're what, rating that's, our show yeah. and writing reviews, I mean, if you re- if you leave a review, we'll read it on the, on the air. Just, just do that. Go there, say how much you love the show. Um, or how much you don't love the show, and we'll read it on the air. <laughs> that seems a little open-ended, uh, but you know, let's do it. That's fine. I'm willing. I'm um, willing to try it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's try new things. You can also email the show, uh, ircb at destroythesib.org. Please reach out. We do love talking to you. Yeah, Infinity Shred does all the music for the show. They're the absolute best band in the universe. Xander is... He's a beautiful man. Just a beautiful <laughs> boy. Love him. Love him to death. He edits the show. Uh, he's a fantastic person, and I'm going to play D&D with him later tonight. I'm so excited. Awesome. Um, finally, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you to all of our Kickstarter backers. We're getting everything in order. All of the stuff is on its way to my house. I'm super excited about the t-shirts and the special new stickers I ordered and the pins and another special thing that I did. So get ready for that. If you want to get some kick- Kickstarter swag, you know, reach out to the show. Maybe we can make something happen. Um, but until next time, we will check you later. And Thank you so much for listening. see that the uh the initial reviews of star wars are rolling in oh uh, yeah i had to mute i muted so many things <laughs> like i did not want this fucking movie spoiled please yeah i'm usually i usually don't care about spoilers too much but yeah this one i definitely want to go in pretty much fresh so yeah see i mean uh, i'm so i'm so confused and conflicted <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I watched the trailers. I didn't. I know there's plenty of people that I know that 
avoided even the trailers themselves. So, yeah, I can uh, understand that. But uh, yeah, I probably skipped some reviews. Just, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna read. I mean, like, what are they gonna say? Oh, it was pretty fucking good. Like, come on, <laughs> it's gonna be great. We know it's gonna be great. It's Star Wars. Like, yeah. Nick, are you back? He's not. He's not. Back. Um. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I just. I just want to see Star Wars. Like that's that. That's all I want to do. <laughs> that's literally the only thing I would do. I still haven't gotten tickets yet. I don't know when I'm gonna go. Oh man, see, you maybe. Maybe like a Sunday matinee. I, was I don't want to deal you, with crowds and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have to see it like <laughs> the opening weekend, right? Or at least like right. maybe you see like a mon- maybe go to like a Monday night showing, you know? That, yeah. Okay, that might be perfect next Monday. Just because, just yeah. like the sooner you see it, the the less you have to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. This is like when Harry Potter six came out, uh, which is a whole other thing. I was spoiled by that book. Like I was one of those people that got a. Uh, my, a friend of mine in high school, I shouldn't say friend, this guy that I went to high school with, um, Harry Potter came out, I got home at like 2 in the morning, because I went to the midnight release, right, because mm-hmm. I was that kid, um, and he sends me an instant message, he's like, hey Mike, what's going on, and I was like, oh, you know, just reading Harry Potter, he's like, oh, cool, go to page 671, and I was like, what, he's like, yeah, Snape kills Dumbledore, and I was like, get the fuck out of here, <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. And I was so mad. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I remember, you know, like when Force Awakens came out, I didn't feel yeah. like there was any worry of spoiler. Yeah. You know, like, because yeah. there could have been. They could have revealed a lot of stuff. I felt like, yeah, definitely the marketing for that movie. Listen, the marketing for that movie was all about nostalgia. Like, all of the trailers were just like, we're going to play the John Williams score. We're going to have some slow shots of X-Wing fighters fighting. Yeah. Isn't that what you want? And it is what I wanted. It's exactly what I want. But I feel like this one, they're actually like, all right, now actually going to tell a new Star Wars story instead of just relying on nostalgia. Back. Welcome back. Welcome back. We were just talking about all the spoilers we want to avoid for the new Star Wars movie. <laughs> oh, I mean, I've. I haven't seen any of the trailer stuff. Like, none of it. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, I, I saw somebody earlier today, uh, I think it was Kate Leff, said that she had something from Star Wars spoiled to, like right in her timeline, and I was like, oh, God. Put me on high alert. <laughs> yeah, I know I know. some people are like already pre-blocking like Star Wars hashtags and shit. Yeah. Um, anyway, so Nick, you finished the, the War of Riddles and jo- Jokes and Riddles or whatever it was called. What what uh, happened? What did what did you think that was not good about it, or okay. like worrisome? Because he was just telling the story to Catwoman to be like, one time I I, I did a bad thing, Cat. One time <laughs> Scott Snyder wrote Zero Year, and we need to justify its existence real bad <laughs> <laughs> by revisiting that shit. See what uh. makes no sense about that storyline then is the fact that in Zero Year, Batman felt super inexperienced. And yeah. then in the War of Jokes and Riddles, he felt like regular Batman. I didn't. I, don't know. I didn't feel that 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 inag- it or whatever you call it inexperience. Yeah, I, I don't think if yeah, I'm trying to remember when they think. I think they mentioned when it takes place. The War of Jokes and Riddles isn't it like a couple years after Zero Year. Oh, it might be. So well, because like this new Batman, like because the current Batman timeline is supposed to take place five years after he becomes Batman or something, something like that. 
Well, I so don't like, know. I, I thought War of Jokes and Riddles was not supposed to be that far removed from Zero Year. Well, because he says he's it's he said at the beginning it was like right after very soon after he had become the Batman, like right. that. I think that's how it opened. Okay. So, anyways, Nick, you you had a problem with the conclusion of that arc, right? So let's make sure maybe I maybe I misunderstood it, but like the end result is that literally everything, and by everything I mean an insane amount of calculating and planning went into the Riddler attempting to make the Joker laugh. <laughs> That's well, yeah. It, right? Well, that was their whole steel, their, their whole stick from the beginning, was that the Joker couldn't laugh at anything, and the Riddler had solved every puzzle. Right. Or every riddle, or that's what they thought. And they, saw, they figured that the last riddle and the last joke was the other. Right. 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 So... <laughs> I mean, I the thing that the thing that sur- survived at the end of it was that didn't Bat- did Batman kill the Riddler? Is that what happened at the end? Um. Oh man, now I'm trying to remember this right. <laughs> no, oh, that's not what God happened. Damn it! I think he nearly kills him. I'm trying yeah. to remember who who stops him from doing it or what stops him from doing it. Um, Isn't it Kite Man? Because the whole thing actually turns out to be a Kite Man origin story. Kite oh, Man yeah, gets totally. Kite Man gets <laughs> knocked out. It. Kite yeah. Man gets knocked out before the final. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not Kite Man. Um, right, hold, I'm pulling it up right else, now. Hold on a second. Something else stops him. Which was this? Was it issue thirty? What was the last issue? Thirty-two. Oh, um, he's gonna stab the the Riddler, and then Joker puts out his hand, and Batman that's ends right. up stabbing Joker through the hand. That's right. That's yep. what it is. That's right. Oh yeah, he was gonna kill him, and the the joke was that even the Batman could be pushed to that limit. And the the funny thing was that the Joker, yeah, okay, the Joker thought that was funny that Batman could be pushed to that level. Okay, I mean, right. I thought that, that was a good like Batman's whole problem is that like he was gonna kill someone without right. Yeah, so I mean, like I think that that's serious. It's to show that he can lose that restraint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that sort of is kind of a um on in I mean, I guess do you do you consider that whole sequence to be an unintended consequence um that the Riddler didn't plan on or that he planned the whole thing all the way through that too and the Riddler is just that much of a genius as well. I I mean, my thought was that the Riddler didn't think that he could push Batman that far. Yeah. Right, that was just a non-intended consequence, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond that, I, it's it's kind of tough to... I don't know. On one hand, I'm like, wow, like the Riddler is like... This is crazy that he's obsessed and fixated to this point, but then again, he is the Riddler, and so you know, he'll literally go down that rabbit hole as as far as he needs to, and uh, you know, ends, ends justify the means, really. So <laughs> um, I guess in that sense, maybe... Like I said, in that sense, it's sort of... While it feels like petty and stupid, on in, on the other side, like for him, mind games and riddles and are mm-hmm. pretty much everything. So yeah, you you will end up poisoning a kid if if you end up getting where you need to be. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. that's the hurdle <laughs> that I was trying to get over. Um, yeah, I think I think the the whole arc was maybe like two issues too long. Oh, I think oh, that's I agree. my major. I agree. 
my major totally. critique. And I'm not even going to say that in in the vein of like those two kite man, uh, right. clay man drawn issues are were the problem. Right. I liked those. I thought the, same. I'm I, I thought those were the best two issues, honestly. Um, uh, but yeah, in other ways, it felt padded. I mean, thank you, double shipping. I mean, if you want to point to another <laughs> thing where it's like double shipping, maybe not the best thing ever. Like I would I would point to that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I just hope we get more Kite Man one way or another. Um, <laughs> well, he's already made it a thing in his run. Like, that's going to be the thing that gets remembered out of this run is going to be oh, the yeah. Kite Man yeah. joke, you know? <laughs> yeah. oh, I thought that it was, like, when he did it, when it happened the first time, I was like, that's that's actually funny. And then it happened a second time, like, callback, nice. And then he did a fucking <laughs> origin story. I was like, oh, man, this, this arc is just about, this whole run is just about Kite Man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. I mean, I I will say I am liking Clay Man on art, but then again, I'm biased because I fucking love Clay Man's art. So I, I, yeah, issue thirty six is a beautiful book, and I think <sighs> yeah, it's yeah. Nick, you have to read that right away because fuck, that's a great issue, dude. Yeah, you could read that without having. Well, you have to read the whole Catwoman arc. I guess, it's but. kind of a standalone, right? I mean, it follows the Joel Jones arc, but it's yeah. sort of a, a thing apart as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, goddamn! Like I seriously was reading that issue and like laughing my ass off at how perfect it just is so well crafted that I mean in in a, in a way that was predictive and you kind like you because you know the trope you know how this is gonna work out and it's mm-hmm. just fantastic. Yeah, that's yeah. Whew. All right, we, we we could do a whole okay. thirty six <laughs> episode at this point, yeah. Xander. I'm gonna trust you to just cut up whatever you think is is necessary there. Um, <clears throat> he just cuts. He just cuts the whole thing. Right. 